Welcome to Med Together. This is a podcast by the people, for the people, as it were. My name is Khana. I'm a med student in New York. This podcast deals with a lot of med school topics, starting from the basic sciences and building its way up, and hopefully it'll be a bit of review that can help y'all consolidate and synthesize important information and maybe phrase it in a way that's easy to understand. By the way, if you're pre-med or you're a nursing student or you're just interested in science medically topics and you're not in healthcare at all, you're totally welcome to. We don't discriminate. If you're interested, you're cool. Ready to rock? Let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome if you're new, welcome back if you're a repeat listener. This talk is in the cell biology series and we're going to talk about receptors today. So we've talked a little bit about channels and transporters which move material across the plasma membrane. And today we're going to talk about another kind of transmembrane protein which carries information across the plasma membrane, the receptors. So first we're going to talk a little bit about signal transduction and receptors in general, and then we'll discuss three of the four broad classes of receptors. There's a lot to unpack here, so buckle up and let's get started. What is signal transduction? This is the mechanism by which cells respond to the environment and to signals that are originating from other cells or organisms. Now, a signal, a biologically meaningful signal, can be chemical, like a neurotransmitter, a hormone, a peptide. It can be an odorant which is like an aerosolized small molecule. Light can act as a signal. Ions can act as electrical signal. pH changes. Gases like carbon dioxide. Lots of different things can act as a signal. But when we refer to a ligand, we mean anything that binds to a receptor. So it doesn't really matter what kind of signal it is. If it binds to a receptor, we call it a ligand. Now there are four different types of signaling. We have, first of all, endocrine signaling, which comes from far away, and this is mostly hormones. On the kind of far other end of the spectrum is autocrine signaling, where the cell actually signals to itself. This is going to be mostly a feedback mechanism on how much is being released by the origin cell. So the cell is going to release something and that something is going to feed back on the receptors on that cell and say, okay, we have enough now. Usually this is negative feedback. We are, there are some systems in the body that are positive feedback loops, but most systems are negative feedback loops, which makes sense. Then we have paracrine signaling. That's signaling from very nearby, like in a nerve synapse. So one cell kind of signals to the cell a couple cells over or next to it, not as far away as endocrine signaling. And then we have juxtacrine signaling, which is similar to paracrine signaling, but this is where the cells are actually touching each other and the signal is being sent through a gap junction. It's not a chemical that's being sent out and diffusing across a synapse like in paracrine signaling. So where are the receptors located? We said that these are transmembrane proteins, and they usually are, but actually it does depend on if the signal itself can get into the cell or not. So for example, with steroids, which are lipid soluble, they actually get into the cell and their receptors are located intracellularly, and those we're going to talk about in the next section of the talk. But if not, and this is the case for most ligands, and we're going to talk about these today, these receptors have to be transmembrane proteins that they can engage with the ligand on the outside and then cause some change inside the cell. Receptors are generally pretty specific. They have a high affinity for their own ligand, so they can pick it up even in low concentration, but there's definitely very often cross-reactivity with receptors that have similar ligands. It's also important to note that receptors are saturable. There's only a finite number of receptors, so at some point, even if you send more signal, and we talked about this in the pharmacology talk, you're only going to get a certain amount of reaction. The thing that all re- all of these transmembrane receptors are going to have in common is that they all couple to an enzyme or have intrinsic enzymatic activity to allow for signal transduction. Signal transduction is a cascade or a chain of reactions that occurs between the engagement of the ligand with the receptor and the ultimate target. Signal transduction pathways are often long and very complicated, but there are some common second messengers that are involved in a lot of them, and we'll touch on those. Just to briefly elaborate on agonists versus antagonists, 
agonists cause a response, antagonists block a response from occurring. Usually signals are agonists at their receptors, which makes sense. You send out a signal because you want something to happen, right? But as with most things in biology, there are exceptions. You might more commonly see antagonists being used in pharmacology to oppose an agonist, like beta blockers. This is a great example. They prevent beta adrenergic receptors from binding their natural ligands, and so they essentially stop their functions. GPCRs are in a continuum from resting, which is not engaged at all with the G protein, to active, which is fully engaging the, the G protein. And we describe this as the R to R star range. It's not just one or the other. In the absence of an agonist, it's close to resting, which is the R state, but it's not actually completely inactive. It does have sometimes some activity. So a full agonist is going to stabilize the receptor in the R star conformation, whereas a partial agonist doesn't get it all the way to R star, but it gets it closer. Now we have to talk about the different kinds of antagonists. A competitive antagonist binds the same binding spot as the ligand, the orthosteric site, and shifts the dose response curve to the right, meaning you're going to need more of the natural ligand now for the same response because it has to outcompete the antagonist, but it can outcompete the antagonist. Neutral antagonists are going to bind to the orthosteric site, but they're not going to shift the equilibrium past the non-bound conformation. So a neutral antagonist is going to prevent the agonist from binding, but you're still going to have a limited interaction with the G protein. It acts essentially like an unbound receptor. It's only an inverse agonist that turns the receptor completely off, completely to the R state, where it can't engage the protein at all, and there will be no R star activity. Now, non-competitive antagonists, just to refresh, don't bind the orthosteric site at all, and they don't really even affect that site. They just disable the receptor essentially. So the receptor can't engage the G protein even if it's bound to its agonist. And this is what, why we call this non-surmountable inhibition, because no matter how much ligand you throw at it, the receptor can engage. Okay, let's go over the four classes of receptors again. We have the intracellular receptors, which mostly take small hydrophobic ligands that can freely enter the cell. These are usually going to be transcription factors, so they have a long-lasting effect, but they're relatively slow-acting. And these are the kinds of receptors that are going to cause changes in the phenotype of the cell. So these are differentiation factors that are going to cause these long-term transcriptional changes that will give the cell its own identity. Then on the other side, we have the ion channels, which open a pore, change membrane potential, use ions as signals. These have like a quick, short-lived response. We're not really going to talk about these because they're fairly straightforward. The ion binds, opens the channel, stuff comes in. But we'll talk about them more when we talk about membrane potential and action potential generation, because that's where they really become important. Now there is a class called transmembrane enzyme-linked receptors, which are mostly tyrosine kinases that will start a phosphorylation cascade or will facilitate other reactions. And we'll talk about those also in the next episode. These are subtly different from the next class, which is the GPCRs, G-protein-coupled receptors. These can have some immediate responses and some longer-lived transcriptional changes and they may have enzymatic activation of a second messenger, but they can also start cascades that lead to gene expression changes. And we're going to focus for the rest of this talk mostly on GPCRs. So what is a GPCR? It's a G-protein coupled receptor. So it's a transmembrane protein with seven membrane-spanning alpha helices, that's the receptor part, and it's coupled to a heterotrimeric G-protein. Heterotrimer, it has three subunits, and they're all different an alpha subunit and a beta-gamma combined subunit. In this particular protein, this C-terminus is in the cytoplasm and is going to engage with the G-protein, and the N-terminus is extracellular, that's what's going to engage with the ligand. The seven helices of this receptor form this basket-like shape, inside of which is the binding site for the ligand. Structurally, all the GPCRs are pretty similar, but there are hundreds of members of this superfamily across many different species. There's a lot, a lot of different GPCRs. We'll talk about their families a little bit, but we're just going to really talk about the stereotypical GPCR for most of this. So how does GPCR signaling work? So an agonist, usually an agonist, is going to bind the receptor. 
going to cause a conformational change that makes the receptor engage the G protein. Now, in its resting state, the G protein is bound to a GDP. Engagement of the receptor causes nucleotide exchange, which opens this guanine binding site where GDP was bound and releases GDP. The open binding site is then going to bind GTP most of the time because there's actually more GTP in the cytoplasm than there is GDP. So since it's more common, once the binding site opens and lets go of the GDP, chances are GTP is going to bind. The alpha subunit is then turned on when it's bound to a GTP. The alpha subunit, when turned on, undergoes a conformational change, which does two things. First of all, it stimulates effectors, and we'll talk about its effectors. The second thing it does is it frees the beta gamma subunit to engage their effectors. They can open ion channels or start second messenger cascades, etc. Now, the alpha subunit has intrinsic GTPase function. So as soon as it's activated, it begins to cleave the GTP back to GDP, so it's already turning itself off. Its activity is, by definition, fairly short-lived. And then, as soon as the alpha subunit is bound to GDP, once it finishes cleaving it, the beta-gamma subunit is re-engaged, and all three subunits get turned off. So this superfamily of GPCRs is divided into groups, group A, group B, group C, and group D. Group A is the most well-studied class, and most drugs that we know of use these, and they all bind the ligand in the plane of the membrane. Groups B and C have very large extracellular end terminus, which is more involved in ligand binding. And an additional point of fact, class C are obligate dimers. Dimer is two proteins coupled together, right? So the protein doesn't form a 14 ring, because remember we said it has these seven transmembrane helices. So it's not that it gets together and forms a 14 helix. It's just two sevens bound to each other, but the seven helix basket stays intact on each one. They're not functional separately, but each site binds its own ligand when they're coupled. So they're structurally independent, but they're functionally dependent on one another. That's group C. Now class D is protease activated. They have a large extracellular domain that gets cleaved to stimulate the receptor instead of binding a ligand. So they're a little bit different. There are differences, lots of similarities between the classes, but we're going to focus on A because of how many drugs target this family. So when an agonist binds to a GPCR, there's actually two steps. So remember we talked about this basket. The ligand kind of bounces around a little bit of the basket to engage the vestibule, and then it moves into the orthosteric site, which is the binding site for the natural ligand. And so the rate-limiting step, so to speak, is the engaging of the vestibule, and once it gets past there, it's pretty quick to bind the orthosteric site. So the speed of engaging the vestibule is the major contributing factor to the potency of an agonist. Okay, I'm going to walk through the G-protein cycle once more because it's pretty complicated. In the ground state, the receptor, which has a 7-helix transmembrane domain, is not binding any ligand. It's bound to a trimeric G protein, the alpha subunit of which is bound to GDP, and the beta-gamma subunit is closed. An agonist binds the receptor. The receptor undergoes a conformational change and opens the nucleotide binding site so that the GDP is kicked off. The alpha subunit then binds GTP, which is abundant in the cytoplasm. The alpha subunit changes conformation and influences its effectors while also releasing the beta-gamma subunits, which can then signal to their effectors. The alpha subunit has intrinsic GTPase activity, and it cleaves the GTP and returns to the inactive state. The beta-gamma subunit doesn't actually undergo a conformational change to get switched on. It just gets released by the alpha subunit, and the face that was bound to the alpha subunit is the face that allows it to interact with its effectors. Now, we've been throwing around the terms effectors and downstream effects, but let's talk about what the subunits do when they're activated. There are about 16 different types of alpha subunits alone, and plenty of different kinds of beta-gamma subunits. Each of one exerts a unique effect, but we're going to focus on four of the alpha subunits. Remember, we're still in the A family of the superfamily. So the alpha sub-S family. This family is characterized by stimulation, hence the letter S, of adenylocyclase to produce cyclic AMP from ADP. So a part of the alpha subunit, which is called the G-protein switch 2 region, 
gets reorganized in the conformational change and it sticks out to interact with adenylocyclase. Adenylocyclase is made of two catalytic domains and the switch two region of the G protein binds the catalytic domains tighter together so they can act more. You have an increase of cyclic AMP and what that increase of cyclic AMP does depends on what type of cell you're in. That cyclic AMP is a very common second messenger which kind of starts a cascade of reactions and what that cas cascade is going to be varies by the type of cell. The alpha sub I family has an inhibitory function with regard to cyclic AMP. It inhibits adenylocyclase and its receptors bind inhibitory hormones. It has other targets as well, but these families were named with relation to cyclic AMP, which was the first second messenger to be discovered, which can incidentally help you remember. Alpha sub S stimulates, alpha sub I inhibits. Now the alpha sub Q family does not have to do with cyclic AMP. Instead, alpha sub Q stimulates phospholipase C. Uh, the beta gamma subunit can also do phospholipase C. But what phospholipase C does is it cleaves PIP2, which is a phosphatidyl inositol. What is a phosphatidyl inositol? You probably don't really have to know this, but if you're interested, it's a phospholipid which contains an inositol head group. An inositol is a six-membered carbon ring bound to hydroxyl groups. So this phosphatidyl inositol is this inositol head group bound to a phosphate and a fatty acid tail. So cleavage by phospholipase C, which is an enzyme that cuts lipids out of phosphate group, will give you IP3, an inositol with three phosphate groups on it, that's kind of the head group, and diacylglycerol, which is two fatty acid chains connected by a glycerol molecule, effectively the tail portion of PIP2. Both of these act as signaling molecules. Diacylglycerol stimulates protein kinase C, which acts at the gene expression level, and IP3 acts on intracellular gated channels and releases calcium from intracellular stores. This will lead usually to muscle contraction, but calcium is a very important messenger in and of itself, and we will elaborate on calcium. Calcium is going to get its whole entire own talk. It's that important. Okay, the last alpha subunit we're going to talk about is alpha-1213. Alpha-1213 has exchange factor activity. When we talked about G-protein-coupled receptors, the G-proteins that we discussed there are what we also call big G-proteins. Small G-proteins like RAC and Rho, and we'll discuss those at later times, function very similarly to the big G-proteins, but they don't have their own intrinsic GTPase activity. So they need other proteins called GEFs, guanine exchange factors, and GAPs, GTPase activating proteins, to help regulate their activity, and that's what alpha-1213 does. Now, we kind of made a big deal about cyclic AMP, and cyclic AMP is a big deal, but what happens when you have cyclic AMP? What does it do? Cyclic AMP has its own three families of downstream targets. The first thing and the most transient thing that cyclic AMP does is it can open channels. Nucleotide-gated channels can bind cyclic AMP and it opens them. These channels are very active in sensory functions, but they're rather nonspecific. They can gate calcium channels, they can gate sodium channels. A really diverse range of things can happen when cyclic AMP opens a channel. One thing I want to mention here, and this is why I love talking about GPCR so much, is that it's really, really useful down the line. If you can remember what the different alpha subunits do, it comes in handy so much down the line, and this is one example. If you know what's happening with cyclic AMP or, or that calcium is being released, it can really help you remember what's going on. So, for example, the adrenergic receptors are all G-protein-coupled receptors. Alpha-1 is a G sub Q, so you know it's going to have to do with muscle relaxation or contraction. Alpha-2 adrenergic receptors are alpha sub I, so you know you're going to have kind of a cessation of cyclic AMP, whatever cyclic AMP happens to be doing. The beta adrenergic receptors are all G sub S. You know, there's going to be an increase in cyclic AMP, and this is what causes a faster heart rate, an adrenergic kind of reaction. The second thing that cyclic AMP can do is it can act on EPAC, which stands for Exchange Protein Activated by Cyclic AMP. 
very creative. This protein has similar actions to the GEF on the alpha subunit of the G protein. These proteins exchange one, for one form of a nucleotide for another, and this particular protein is regulated by cyclic AMP. Now the one you're going to hear about most, and probably the most long-lasting effect of cyclic AMP, is on protein kinase A. This kinase is a tetramer. It has two catalytic subunits called C subunits, and they're regulated by its two regulatory or R subunits. When cyclic AMP binds, it binds to the regulatory subunits and it releases the C subunits and activates them. What does the C subunit do? Protein kinase A is a kinase. What it does is it moves the gamma phosphate of ATP to proteins, phosphorylates them. In its inactive form, the R subunit is blocking the portion where the substrate, the protein to be phosphorylated, would bind. And this occludes the binding site by a process called pseudo-substrate inhibition, which is basically like competitive inhibition. Cyclic AMP makes the pseudo-substrate region of the R subunit retract, and the free active C subunit can then affect a range of diverse cellular events by phosphorylating an array of cytoplasmic and nuclear protein substrates, including enzymes, transcription factors, lots of stuff can happen. So cyclic AMP is pretty important. Again, just to reiterate, it can have quick and transient responses like opening channels, or it can have longer-term changes by a PKA. Now, we're not really going to go into all the things that the beta-gamma subunits do. We did mention that beta-gamma can also stimulate phospholipase C, but one more thing, and this is unique to the beta-gamma subunits of GPCRs. There are other things that can do this, but within the GPCRs, only the beta-gamma subunit can regulate PI3 kinase. PI3 kinase is important because it's responsible for growth-promoting activity. The face of the beta-gamma subunit that was bound to the alpha subunit is the area that's relevant for interacting with its effectors. So when it's released from the alpha subunit is when it can do its job. And what it can do is it can phosphorylate any phosphonositide at the 3 position and turn it into a PIP3. PIP3 can then bind protein kinase B and can cause downstream effects and growth. P10, which is something you may have heard about in relation to cancer, is a phosphatase and it kind of acts as the counterweight to PI3 kinase. And its job is to dephosphorylate the 3 position of PIP3, turn it back into PIP2, and turn off growth. If you have a mutation in P10 and it's not working, you can get abnormal growth, which can lead to cancer. This is one of the reasons why PI3 kinase is so important and why I just wanted to mention it here quickly. Okay, we're going to touch on regulation a little bit. So we have to recognize it's kind of important for the duration of signals to be short because, first of all, it allows for resetting of the next signals. And also, too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. There are toxins which just mess with the timing of signals and they're toxic. So, for example, at neuromuscular junctions, acetylcholine esterase stops the signal from persisting for too long and you don't have too much contraction. If you have a problem with that, that's tetanus, where you just have these constant contractions and you can't stop because the signal doesn't get degraded properly. Another example is that there are a number of psychoactive drugs SSRIs that make signals last longer in the synapse just by blocking reuptake. Some things that are not legal drugs, like cocaine. How does cocaine work, by the way, in case you were wondering? Cocaine stops dopamine from being reuptaken, so it makes the signal of dopamine persist longer. That's why you get this feeling of constant reward, which is awesome and addictive, and that's why cocaine is addictive. So aside from degrading the signal, not having any more signal, there also is a built-in mechanism that stops GPCRs from constantly transducing. The beta-gamma subunit automatically, as part of being turned on, recruits GRK, G-receptor kinases, which phosphorylate the receptor. The phosphorylated receptor is now a binding site for arrestins, which are proteins that stop the GPCR signals by internalizing the receptor, so it actually pulls the receptor off the surface. The receptor can then be degraded in a lysosome, or it can be recycled and brought back to the membrane. Important to note, GRK are only recruited to active GPCRs, remember, because they're recruited by beta-gamma when they're turned on. This brings us to homologous desensitization, which we talked about just a little bit in pharmacology. Frequent signaling through a GPCR is going to cause a lot of receptor internalization 
because signaling all the time, it's on all the time, recruiting GRK all the time, which means that there's less receptors on the surface, which means that there are less receptors on the surface at any given time. Chronic use also causes the recycling to slow down and again causes less receptor on the surface, so the response slows down. We know that this is pharmacokinetic tolerance and it can be overcome by upping the dose so that the receptors that are present will bind more quickly, but you know, only to a certain extent. Heterologous desensitization, which we also discussed briefly, in this case the receptor is not activated. It's in its ground state, but it gets phosphorylated by some other receptor cascade. It, this is agonist independent, but it's dependent on the second messenger cascade from that other receptor. So this is like a cross-tolerance sort of issue. Now I want to mention the concept of a biased agonist. If you remember, we discussed the R-star conformation where the G protein is being engaged. There are multiple different R-star conformations, and a biased agonist is going to elect one over the others. If we use the opioid receptors as an example again, when morphine binds a GPCR, it activates the pathways that stimulate all the different G protein functions equally, which makes morphine an unbiased agonist. Other opiates don't stimulate in the same ways, and they actually don't cause the same beta gamma recruitment of arrestins. So these are biased agonists. Okay, so now we talked about how the receptors can be stopped, just to talk about how the downstream pathways can be stopped. So second messengers are usually degraded relatively quickly. Cyclic AMP, for example, is degraded by phosphodiesterase relatively quickly. Changes like phosphorylation are regulated by phosphatases, like we mentioned the PIKB kinase P10 pathway back a couple minutes ago. So phosphatases are around to pretty quickly regulate the effects of having it had any phosphorylation. Now G sub Q, which remember has those two second messengers, IP3 and diacylglycerol, both products are short-lived and they're converted to inert forms pretty quickly. And this is important because, like we said, IP3 gates calcium and the release of calcium has to be exquisitely controlled. And again, we will talk about why a little bit later. I'm excited for that one. The calcium is a good talk, so get ready for it. The point is, every step of the way, the effects of a signal can be stopped and reversed. And this just kind of shows you when there are so many fail-safes, it kind of gets you thinking about how important the fail-safes must be. Okay, that was a lot. This is a good stopping point. We're going to cover receptor tyrosine kinases and intracellular receptors in part two, but let's do a quick wrap up of this section. Receptors carry information from outside the cell to inside, and the type of receptor needed depends on the type of signal. GPCRs, which we covered in today's talk, have two parts. The receptor, which spans the membrane and interacts with the extracellular ligand, and the G protein that it interacts with, which has an alpha subunit and a beta gamma subunit. When the receptor engages its ligand, it undergoes a conformational change, which causes the alpha subunit to release GDP, bind GTP, undergo a change, and affect second messengers and free the beta-gamma subunit to do the same. The alpha subunit has intrinsic GTP's activity, which soon cleaves the GTP and the whole system resets. The beta-gamma subunit can also turn the system off by attracting arrestins, which will internalize the receptor, and this is one way that we develop tolerance. The second messengers differ based on the alpha subunit. G sub S increases cyclic AMP, G sub I inhibits cyclic AMP, G sub Q signals through calcium mostly, and these are the most important principles to keep in mind. They'll come back to you over and over and over again. So if you remember these G-protein-coupled receptors, what each alpha subunit does, it will help you so much down the line. I promise. Okay, that's it for now. Thank you so much for joining and for staying till the end. If you liked this and found it useful, please rate the show and share it with your friends. Feedback is welcome and encouraged. Please reach out with comments, questions, concerns, requests, just to say hi. Email me at medtogether26 at gmail.com and I will answer you as soon as I possibly can. Catch you next time.